We're continuing our study in Second Kings. I thought we would originally do a study on the five solas, but it didn't happen. Uh, this week we will have a review during uh, the lunchtime, Reformation review, but we'll see something today of sola fide and sola deo gloria and even sola scriptura from Second Kings 7. And so let's read our text, which is a long story. It's one unit continuing from chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Maybe let's pick it up at 6.33. While he was still talking with them, behold, the messenger came down to him, to, I believe, Elisha, and he said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Remember, Samaria was under siege and they had this horrible famine that we read about last time. Verse 2. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, that's Samaria, and they said to one another, why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we will but die. Verse 5. They arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, The king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore, they arose and fled in the twilight, and they left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from their silver and gold and clothes, and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent, and carried from there also, and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, Let us go and tell the king's house. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, 
we came to the camp of the Arameans, and behold, there was no one there, nor the voice of man, only the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents just as they were. The gatekeepers called and told it within the king's household. Then the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I will now tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and get into the city. One of his servants said, Please, let some men take five of the horses which remain, which are left in the city. Behold, they will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it. Behold, They will be in any case like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let us send and see. They took, therefore, two chariots with horses. And the king sent after the the army of the Arameans, saying, Go and see. They went after them to the Jordan. And behold, all the way was full of clothes and equipment which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. It happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel, and a measure of fine flour for a shekel, will be sold about this time at the gate of Samaria." Then the royal officer answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled on him at the gate, and he died. What a dramatization. What a story that is... Fantastic. That's causes us to really drop our jaw open and say, what happened here? We saw last week in chapter 6, God had punished Samaria with this famine, with this siege, as he promised back in Leviticus. And we saw that idolaters were cursed or punished by God. But in this chapter, we see God blessing the idolaters, not because they had repented, but for his own name's sake, which we'll get to in a moment. King Jehoram had this hard-hearted attitude toward the Lord, and he even had called for Elisha to be beheaded. So we're going to see how God really flips everything on its head and turns it all around, and we see God blessing the idolaters. The title is Idolaters Blessed by God. Throughout this series, we've seen these juxtaposed pictures of people and how God worked. We saw that he he blessed 
um, Naaman, and then he cursed Gehazi. And here, just in a few verses, we see him punishing Samaria and then blessing Samaria. It's back to the Leviticus uh, teaching that there are God is able and does bless and punish. Both come from his hand. So we'll see more of that. But I trust this will be an encouragement message, though a very sobering end, as we read. Well, verse 1, again, stand amazed as you as you think about this story and all its intricacies and even its repetition, how God was going to bless Samaria. And is there any reason in the text of why he would bless Samaria, I don't see it. Even Ahab had this sackcloth on, but yet he said, "Let's." I'm, I want Elisha dead. And he did not believe, and his right-hand man said, why should we wait for God? Why should we wait for the Lord? So it's God's grace, and that's what we'll consider first in verse 1. Again, Elisha said to them, listen or hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, I think you could even have that as the title, tomorrow, there's something in that one word. About this time, a measure of fine flour, which is about seven and a half quarts, think of a quart of milk, seven of those, will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Everything's around the gate, the gate of Samaria. And remember, that's where the threshing floor was located as well, so there's There's a lot here, I believe, and we'll see the lepers in a moment. But the prophet's job was was to do what? Very simply, we see it in verse 1. What was he supposed to do? The prophet of God, what's their primary mission? Bring forth the word of God, the message of God. That's what his role was, and God often rebuked the false prophets because they said things that were not God's word. And all through the minor and the major prophets, thus says the Lord, over and over and over and over. And I can't wait till Tom refers to this this morning in Hebrews chapter 1. All the prophets were prophesying about God and telling until the prophet came. And there's an interesting connection, and I think you could connect the Old and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, pointing toward Christ. All these prophets were telling the word of the Lord, and we have the final revelation in Jesus Christ. I I can't wait to hear Tom in the next hour about that. That was his role, to preach and explain the word of God to the people. Here we have a word of grace, a word of grace to the people of God the covenant people of God in Samaria. They had experienced this horrific famine that caused at least a few of them to become cannibals. Apparently many had died. Most of the horses had died. The donkeys were probably dead or eaten by other people. Reading between the lines, as we uh, noticed, as we read chapter 7, there was just a few horses left. And by the way, the population of Samaria would not have exceeded 40,000 apparently. So thousands of people. And the size of the hilltop there in Samaria apparently is about 15 football fields in in size. So they were crammed in there. The people were in there. Some of you have been there. And uh, I hope John and Joan bring a picture back for us of the hill of Samaria. I'd be curious how erosion may have affected it over the, the centuries. But you can think of that city with thousands and thousands of people, let alone the animals The animals were all dead, primarily, and many people had apparently died. 
So that was the backstory. Now God says, even though this king was so wicked, God says, tomorrow. The previous verse said, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And Elisha says, tomorrow. God said, tomorrow to the people. Jehoram wanted to behead Elisha, but Elisha wants to, by the will of God, bless Samaria. And even the king, by implication, for no reason, lesson one of eight, God's grace and mercy are always undeserved. Now, I'm not saying that the king was converted. I'm not saying all the people were. It's the remnant that was saved. But God's grace and mercy are always undeserved. These people didn't deserve it. The king didn't deserve it. They were idolaters. They had not repented in sackcloth and ashes. The king had on the garb, but he did not repent. He was evil. He wanted to kill God's man. I love the Puritan uh, Joseph Hall. He said, Oh, infinite mercy, when man says, I will wait no longer, and God says, Tomorrow I will bless you. It's amazing If it was us, we would have said, tomorrow, you, Jehoram, will drop dead. Now, his messenger is punished for his unbelief. But surely, the right-hand man to the king was speaking for the king. Jehoram was not a godly man, and we read the summary about his life. He did evil like his father, Ahab. Leviticus 26, that we read last time about the blessings and the curses. At the end of Leviticus 26... In verse 44, we read these words. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them so as to destroy them. Why? Because I will not be breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. It was nothing within Israel that that drew out God's grace. As a matter of fact, he was, he did punish them, he would punish them, yet he would not utterly forsake them because they, he had made a covenant with Israel. And he would be gracious in spite of this, in spite of their idolatry and their sins. And by God's grace, if we know the Lord, we see that it's, it's his grace that is in spite of our sins that he blesses us. And even his common grace, he causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. That's the God of grace. So maybe a hint of sola fide, at least for believers. We know it is all of grace and God's kind mercy and grace to the world and particularly here to his covenant people Israel. It's in Psalm 78 as well. God was angry at Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet, that little word yet or but, He commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down manna upon them. God didn't give manna to the Israelites because they deserved it. It was because he was gracious. It was in spite of, it was because of who God was. So we exalt the grace of God. I was watching or listening to some sports news. I'm not a huge fan, but I heard the guy say, when, when one of the players had this remarkable success after success after success, the, the commentator said, this guy must be living right for that to happen. Now, there are blessings to obedience, but in this general illustration, just because good things happen to you doesn't mean you're living right. 
Because God's grace is in spite of. Now, again, you can't take it too far. There are blessings, of course, to obedience. But just be, even if we're uh, obeying quite well, bad things can happen in God's providence. But it's not because these guys were doing something right that God relieved the famine. It was in his own character. God's grace and mercy are always undeserved. He prophesied this miracle of fine flour and barley going from those very high prices to a reasonable price. Still high prices at one day's labor because they didn't have storehouses of food. They had what they're going to collect. And by the way, uh, one author said that according to Babylonian sources, a shekel could normally pay for a hundred quarts of barley. So it's still a high price because they're only collecting the booty uh, from the enemies. So keep that in mind. Again, magnify, relish, embrace the grace of God. We see his son rising on the just and the unjust. And as believers, we see his grace poured out upon us in Christ. It's very encouraging. And we see that he blessed Israel in spite of its undeserved favor. Verse 2. The royal officer or the captain or the armor bearer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he, that is Elisha, said, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. This man was unbelieving and again, He's speaking for the king. He's the king's right-hand man. He is the captain, the lieutenant, the general, whatever rank it was, maybe the armor-bearer. He was right there. The king was leaning upon him. And he spoke. We don't hear the words of Jehoram, but surely his advisor, his chief guy, his right-hand man, they had the same mindset reading between the lines. He He doubted the power of God if the Lord could do this thing. Of course the Lord could do this thing. Or the, another translation is, could this really happen? Holman Christian Standard, which I really love. And he uses this reference, could God or would God open the windows of heaven, which is also used of the flood. When God opened the windows of heaven, and it's used in Malachi, the windows of heaven to bless. So it is a, a phrase, some phraseology that was in their earlier history, and maybe there's a reference there, but he did not believe it. So learn from this unnamed royal officer, lesson two, beware of not believing the gracious word of God. Beware of not believing the gracious word of God. As our friend Martin, excuse me, uh, I was thinking Martin Luther, Reformation Sunday, William Cooper said in his great hymn, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. Blind unbelief is sure to err. This man was unbelieving and he would lose his life for it. Horrifically, in all, in the midst of all this blessing, this man would see it, so maybe he had a certain blessing, but he would He would die on the next day. The next day. Romans 4.20 says, Yet within respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. When we see these characters in the Old Testament, in the historical narrative, we learn how not to live. 
This man was full of unbelief, and so we don't want to be like him. We want to beware of not believing in the gracious word of God. Again, Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, but grow strong in faith, giving glory to God. By God's grace, we have faith, but we want to lay hold of God's gracious words to appropriate it for ourselves, to trust in Him, to cling to Him, and not be unbelieving. Unbelief could lead to apostasy, and but for God's grace it would. So we cry with that man in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We want to be full of faith, like Abraham, even though things get difficult and things get tough, we want to believe what God says in His Word, and this man did not. So, so it's a good self-check. Do you have unbelief in an area? Are you not leaning on the promises of God? Those beautiful things, how he promised to care for us. And, and here he promised that the, the next day this would happen, but this man didn't believe it. What are you not believing God about or for? Let us repent of unbelief. Let us cling to him and be strong, not like this man. Well, verses 3 and 4 begin an amazing twist. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, dumbfounding, if you will. Verse 3, now, <clears throat> and that's often a shift when we read the word now, now there were four leprous men, just so randomly. Four lepers? Really? Now there were four leprous men at the gate, at the entrance of the gate, so they're outside of Samaria, and they said to one another, why do we sit here until we die? They're just facing death. They're suffering. If we say we will enter the city, then the famine's in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we will die also. Now therefore come, let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we'll but die. They, they've sort of given up hope. They're one last hurrah, one last... Uh, uh, quest to, to find life, to get food. They would get food, but they would also discover something amazing that God did for Israel. Some point out that lepers, uh, as mentioned in Leviticus 13, had to live outside the camp or outside the gate, but they mentioned actually going inside somehow and uh, it's point, these, these guys had a skin disease, I guess, is, is actually the phraseology in the Hebrew. So there's some question, but, but we'll take it at face value that they were lepers and they were obviously gathered together. They were not with the people of God to make them unclean or unholy. And they were outside the gate starving to death. Like our previous chapters, we had that little girl that helped Naaman that was taken hostage. We had that poor widow that helped Elisha. In these stories, God used very unlikely candidates. Very unlikely that the people that would bring the good news were the lepers. It's remarkable. Why why the little girl? Why the poor widow? It seems God is showing that he can use the most unexpected means to accomplish his will. Four lepers doomed to death. I mean, the people in Samaria were, were dying and we read what they were doing, but fascinating, these unlikely candidates, uh, and we could say the same about ourselves, and we know God did not choose many mighty 
and so forth and so on. Um, we, we are humbled and that God could use the likes of us. But they concluded they were doomed. So they had this plan that they're going to check out the Aramean camp. So they arose at twilight, notice that word twilight, to go to the camp. And when they came to the outskirts, the edges, maybe the area where the, all the soldiers were not located because they were trying to sort of sneak in where it wasn't the front gate or they may have been speared or shot at with arrows. They were going to these outskirts and, and, they, and behold, there was no one there. Their jaws must have dropped open. And why did this happen? Verse 6, For the Lord had caused the army of the Aramaeans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. They were in shock. All this was happening. Many people had died. They were near death. And yet they came thinking they would might just beg for a little food and everybody was gone. It was a ghost town. Actually, it was, it was better than a ghost town because all the stuff was still there. Maybe the fires were still going. There was still hot coffee heated up or a hot drink, whatever it was. It was late in the evening at twilight, the end of the day, but the night was coming. We don't know exactly when, but it seems it was just at the end where it was sunset, twilight. But let's focus on these words, and really this verse 6 is the highlight of the passage. For the Lord had caused. That's worthy of underlining, and I even highlighted it in my Bible. For the Lord had caused. I love to read those types of words in the Bible because it reminds us and of lesson 3, stand in awe. excuse me, of the sovereign power of God in history. Stand in awe. That's one of the purposes of 2 Kings 7 is that we would see in the middle of this story, behind the story, through the story, God's sovereign power in history for His people. For the Lord had caused. And it's going to give us details, but He is, as they've said, the causeless cause. God is causing whatever comes to pass. Psalm 118.23, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's beautiful. And how did he do it? What word is repeated three times here? Did you catch it? I know it's early. Verse 7, there's a word repeated three times. I know some of you kids really pay close attention. What word in verse 7 is repeated Not verse 7, I have it wrong here. Excuse me, verse 6. Verse 6, there's a word repeated three times, and it's the tool that God used. A sound, a sound, a sound. God used a sound to terrorize the massive and powerful army of the Arameans. And they fled. They didn't just flee with their stuff. They, They literally ran for their lives and left everything behind. And they thought that the king of Israel had somehow hired the Hittites and the Hittites had dominated the area north uh, in the Syrian area. And they thought that they had hired Egypt, who Egypt, uh, many years earlier, they were the ones that sold all the chariots and horses to Solomon. 
They were a mighty force, of course, in the region. And these Arameans were so afraid, they thought that multiple armies were coming to attack them. But it was God making a sound. God can use any means he chooses. As we say, he works with the means, without the means, or against the means. Normally, he uses regular means. But he is able to do whatever he pleases. In the earlier, previous chapter, remember we saw Elisha when he saw and he prayed that the servant's eyes would be opened and there were all these angelic uh, chariots of fire all over the place. You couldn't hear them. But they were there. Here, you can hear them, but nothing was seen. It's profound. I think even connecting the previous chapter that God is the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth. He's the Lord of armies, angel armies, and he gives his angels charge over us. We marvel at God's sovereign power in history to protect his people. Soli, soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory. He did this. The Lord caused this to happen. Praise Him. Trust in Him. Worship Him. Psalm 66, 6. There, let us rejoice in Him. As at the Red Sea and when the Jordan River was parted, and maybe even in our Christian vocabulary, remember that story with the lepers and how the Lord caused the enemies of Israel to hear this sound and they ran like scared children. No offense, kids. Could be me running. If you heard what you thought were multiple armies coming, you, you take off and you head back home. And that's where they were going. Verses 7 and 8. Therefore, the Arameans, they arose and fled in the twilight. Now, some authors say that God somehow used the lepers coming because they left at twilight and their little sound was amplified I don't really see that, but you can chew on the consideration. But at least it does mention at twilight and at twilight. Maybe there's a connection. I'm not sure. But they fled in the twilight and left not only their food, but they left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. They were petrified. These were not brand new recruits. They were the grand army of the Arameans. And when these lepers came to the outskirts, just the edges of the camp, they entered one tent and they feasted. They ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes. They must have been laughing and, and cackling at what happened. They, they were near death. And all of a sudden they had all the food they could eat and all the wine or water they could drink and all the gold and silver and clothing. What good would that? Well, it could help them buy more food later, uh, which surely we'll see in a moment. But they took all that and and they went and they hid it. They buried it because we're going to need it later. They hid it somewhere. Maybe they buried the gold and silver and put the food uh, behind a stump or whatever, a bush, whatever they did. They hid it. And then they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. Twice they're into these uh, tents getting all the stuff. Somehow wrapping it up in, in, in in a cloak or something and hauling it away. Lesson four, again, marvel at the Lord's provision for his people. They got a lot more than flour and barley. God had promised flour and barley, but what did he give them? And even noting further on in the passage, of course, they had the tents. They had food. They had drink. 
They picked it up. They had silver. They had gold. They had clothes. And verse 10 will say they had horses and donkeys and the tents just as they were. Everything was there. The only thing not there were the enemies. They had ran off, and we'll see as they went, when the, when the king sent the few people to go check, what did they find along the, the trails? More clothes, more, they were just lightening the load and heading back to, uh, uh Damascus, and, and they left everything. So marvel at the Lord's provision for His people. He said, uh, I'm going to bless you, I'm gonna give you, uh, this food, but He, He gave them way more. Battle gear, who knows? Chariots. It's not mentioned, but if the horses were there, surely the chariots were. Chariots need horses to pull them. The Lord provided for Israel. And this is not because there was a national repentance in Israel. It was His grace in spite of. And we would say the same. By God's grace, we have so much. Verse 9. Then these lepers said to one another, we are not doing right. The day is a day of good news, but we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, so it's in the nighttime, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. Again, the Holman Christian Standard says, our sin will catch up with us. That's their translation. Our sin will catch up with us. We have the word punishment. Apparently the word can mean iniquity, guilt, and so forth. One author said that the, the word denotes both the deed and its actions or consequences. So it's, it's something that deserves this punishment. Conscience. Let's, let's pause here. Again, this is descriptive history of what they did, but what, what might we learn from this, these lepers, we could learn in the fifth place that we ought to listen to our consciences. We ought to listen to our consciences, consciences, but going forward into the New Testament era and of course the whole Bible, but let's be sure to bind them to the scriptures. We don't know if these lepers believed in God, but at least they were convicted that we're here gobbling up all the food, but the rest of our people are starving. And so they, they felt guilty. And this word punishment. Remember when John did the series in the gospel, the gospels and he taught us about leprosy? Leprosy was viewed as what? What was it? Was it a blessing from God? No, it was a, it was a judgment. So I'm, I'm not surprised in one sense that they were worried about punishment because in some sense they knew that they, they had some type of punishment from God. That was the general view of leprosy. So they were, uh, maybe, maybe their motive here, their conscience was not just let's honor God and go tell everybody. No, they were worried what would happen to them. They were worried about punishment, whether from God or Israel who would find them and say, what are you doing? You have all the food and they would be killed. So it's it's hard to know exactly, but at least they said we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. We got to tell our fellow Israelites regarding the conscience. I love Paul's words to Felix in Acts twenty four. He said, "I always do my best to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and men." That is is a wonderful 
rule for us. It's a wonderful example that we ought to be men and women, boys and girls of conscience. Listen to your conscience when it tells you that's wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Make it right. Of course, before God, we want, we must have a conscience bound to scripture. Sometimes we can get tripped up. Is this right or is this wrong? Usually we know very well it's wrong and we must repent and we must apologize or make it right. So let's learn from these lepers in this unusual story that we ought to listen to our consciences. It's a good thing. In all of history, if people listen to their conscience, and even when God spoke to Cain, the first words after the fall, and, and God told Cain, Behold, sin is at the door, crouching, and its desire is for you. So we have to be alert to our conscience. Cain had quieted his conscience. Enough to kill his own brother. Getting off topic a bit, but he had no conscience. So let's listen to our consciences. Verse 10. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city. There's the progression here. Watch for the word called. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city, and they told them, saying, We came to the camp of the Aramaeans, and behold, there was no one there nor the voice of man, only the horses tied and the donkeys tied, and the tents, just as they were. The gatekeepers called and told it within the king's house. The news is traveling fast. The the lepers go to the gate, the gate goes to the king's house. The good news is traveling up the chain of command. The gates have been locked tight to keep the enemies out. They're calling to these gatekeepers, and, and they passed on the news. Verse 12. Then the king arose in the night. Maybe it's 2 a.m. We don't know. He arose in the night and said to his servants, I will now tell you what the Aramaeans have done. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out from the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we will capture them alive and get into the city. Now, you could think, well, this king is is wise. He, He knows these enemies are sneaky or... We, we found him back in chapter 3. He, he's a man of conspiracies. He's always fearful. He didn't say, well, maybe this is the tomorrow that Elisha spoke of. Don't want to be unnecessarily hard, but he was unbelieving. We know that. He's faithless and he's suspicious. And those go along together quite well, I believe. Faithlessness and, and, and swallowing up conspiracies and being cynical. Verse 13, filling in some blanks here. One of the king's servants said, Please, let some men take five of the horses which remain. Again, the others were probably dead. That may have been it. Which are left in the city. Behold, they will be, in any case, like all the multitude of Israel who are left in it, dead. Behold, they will be, in any case, like all the multitude of Israel who have already perished. So let us send and see. This wise servant, and we saw a similar one back in 612, giving the king similar advice. Give it a chance. Check it out. Gather information. Go see the situation. There's only five horses available. Times are tough. We're near the end. Send two, send a few and go check it out. Give it a try, King Jehoram. Well, verse 14, the answer. They took, therefore, two chariots with horses 
And the king sent after the army of the Arameans saying, go and see, go check it out. The king actually listened, which is, is good for him, and he says, go and see. Usually there were three men on a chariot. Uh, was it was it one horse or two? There were five horses available. It's unclear. Maybe some had three, maybe one had three and one had two. We don't know. But they sent out these two chariots with horses, with the men, to go and see. Verse 15. They went after them. They, they followed the, the trail. It was surely a mess. Of Maybe it was the main trail. We don't know. They went to the Jordan. They followed the enemy, the Arameans, to the Jordan. And behold, all along the way was full of clothes and equipment, which the Arameans had thrown away in their haste. Then the messengers returned and told the king, it was 25 miles straight line from Samaria to the Jordan, by my understanding. And however it winded, they went part way. The enemy was heading that direction, throwing everything off. Maybe it was just that they were heading east. Um, but the Lord had made them throw away all their stuff so that Israel could come collect it. His ways are unfathomable. Yes, verse 16. So the people... The, the news got back. We don't even have the interim information. They came back and, and it, w- news traveled. There's food. The Aramans are gone. And verse 16, so the people went out. Maybe it's a mad rush. And everybody's telling somebody, there's food, there's food, let's go. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Aramans. Just a few verses earlier, who was sieging Samaria? The Aramans were sieging Samaria and there was no food. They were starving them out. Now the Israelites are plundering the Arameans. Then a a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Again, key uh, truth. The, The main doctrine in this chapter, it's all according to the word of God. Lesson six, see here a divine reversal. We love to see that in our lives, in history. A divine reversal. The enemy besieged Samaria, but the Lord blessed Samaria with the enemy's stuff. He not only somehow gave, he didn't give manna from heaven, which he could have, he did it before. He said, I'm going to bless you in such a way to show you that I can send that enemy away with a sound and they leave everything. Gold, silver, horses, donkeys, tents, weapons, chariots, food. There must have been joy beyond measure among those thousands. We said up to 40,000 people could have lived in Samaria. Maybe, who knows how many had died. There were thousands and thousands of people going out plundering the Arameans. See the divine reversal. They plundered the camp. The very camp that was had them under siege, making them die of starvation. God used this means to provide the famished people with food. Again, admire and delight in the detailed work of God. Soli Deo Gloria. This was God's work, according to his word, to his people Israel, who didn't deserve it, but he was so gracious for his own name's sake. Praise him. Praise Him. All this was done according to the word of the Lord, just as the man of God had said. 
Lesson 7. And we could say it every time we read those words. Let us cultivate a deep trust in God's word. When God says something, we must believe it for our own good. It honors God and it blesses us. We must trust him. The Reformation principle that the Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. We have, thus says the Lord, in our Bibles from Genesis to Revelation. And we can study it and and we must believe it and trust in what God's word says. I thought of Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, refined seven times. Remember, seven refers to what? Completion, uh, totality. God's word is pure. It's tried. It's proven. It is trustworthy. Kids, when you grow up, as you go through your life, you can always come back to the word of God. Your parents may fail you. Yes. Your friends may fail you. Yes. Your employer may fail you. Yes. America will fail you, yes, but God will never fail his word. Not one promise of his word will ever fail, ever. And we must cultivate this deep trust. And when things get bad, if you face cancer, you get a verse from Isaiah and you cling to the Lord. Because you can't trust in chemotherapy. You can't trust in the means. You trust in the God of the means or who goes against the means or without the means. Cultivate a deep trust in God and His Word. Because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures, how long? Forever. We need to be people of the book. That's why I love more than anything that came out of the Reformation, sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Without this book, we know nothing. We see that there is a God by creation, but we cannot know God and Jesus Christ without the book. We need the book. And every prophet kept telling Israel what to do, telling Judah what to do. This is how you must live. And we'll see it in Hebrews. God has revelation. And finally, he gave the revelation of Christ. And then he gave us the canon of Scripture. We receive it. We receive the word of God. And every prophet, when they say, thus says the Lord... The the people of God had to pay attention and it's meant to encourage us and we remind ourselves of the story of the four lepers. Let's, in a few months, say, hey, do you remember the story of the four lepers? Remind ourselves about it because we can find encouragement how the Lord caused this to happen and it happened according to the word of the Lord, according to the word of the man of God. Time is fleeting. Well, we'll, 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 we'll pause there until next week. Um, let's see, what have we covered? We did lessons one through seven, just in review, and if you have questions. We said, beware of not believing the word of God. As the official did not believe, we didn't, we read it at the end, he, he's trampled by this hungry mob. Beware of not believing the word of God, Hebrews. Second, no, that was second. Because I swapped pages, I got out of order. First was God's grace is always undeserved. Second, beware of not believing the word of God. Third, stand in awe of the sovereign power of God in history. Fourth, marvel at the Lord's provision for his people. Fifth, we ought to listen to our consciences, but let's be sure to bind them to the scriptures. Sixth, 
See that divine reversal. The enemy besieged Samaria, but the Lord blessed Samaria with the enemy's stuff. And then finally, we just said, let us cultivate this deep trust in God's word. Does anyone have one quick question? I'm happy to hear and, and come share your thoughts at the meal or anytime. Let's pray. Father, your word is a treasure. We love it. And by your grace, we want to live it. And we want to learn the lessons from Second Kings. Lord, forgive us because we've read your word and we forget so much to our own weakness, to our own discouragement. Father, may we learn from the bad examples in the Bible as well as the good ones. May we learn to have a conscience. May we learn to have faith. May we love your word. May we treasure revelation. And we do rejoice that we have the final revelation in Jesus Christ. Father, may we be faithful to you, to the scriptures, and not just to say we love sola scriptura, but really, Lord, to be transformed as we study, as we listen to your word preached, as we worship you. Be pleased to grow us, and uh, may our faith be strong in the days ahead. Even today, may our faith be strong in you. You are faithful. You do good to your people. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.